Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. And it says, As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something, and he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one on, at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, on first look, Verses 17, 18, and 19, where Jesus foretells his death. And then verses 20 through 28, where you know, some of your translations or your Bibles might say a mother's request or whatever, where, where the James and John come and ask about who's going to sit on your right and your left. They may look like they don't really go together, but you're going to hopefully see tonight that they actually connect really well. Because you're going to see, hopefully, that Jesus is modeling in the first verses, 17 through 19, the same attitude that he teaches in the next section, verses 20 through 28. So that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We'll spend our time breaking this down. So Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem to be put to death. Now he knows this, but his disciples don't know this, even though he's told them already. I don't know if you know this or not. But what you just read, what we just read here in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, is the third time that Jesus has told them that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be killed. Let's go back and take a look real quick at the other two. In Matthew chapter 16, look at verses 21 through 23. Matthew 16, verse 21 says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jump over to chapter 17, look at verses 22 and 23. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Now again, let's look again at our passage for tonight, Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 and following, 17, 18, and 19. It says, And Jesus, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, interestingly enough, as we see from our study of Matthew, this the third time. He's given them a little bit more information even this time. He's already talked about the chief priests and the scribes, but now he's saying they're going to even hand me over to the Gentiles and he even tells them I'm going to be crucified. 
Mark actually records these three times as well. Go with me to the book of Mark real quick. Go to Mark chapter 8 and be paying attention because I'm going to ask you a question at the end of our three passages in Mark. Go to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. It says in Mark 8, 31, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jump over to Mark chapter 9. Look at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise but they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Jump over to chapter 10. Look at verses 32 through 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. It says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they'll condemn him and to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Keep reading, though. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, besides the, well, before I go there, let me just ask you the question I told you I was going to ask you. Why hadn't they heard him? It's been three times. I'm sorry? Selective hearing. Well, um, in a sense, I would, I would agree with that. The Holy Spirit had not revealed it to them. Okay, now, yes, but we're going to clarify that in just a second. So, Holy Spirit not clar clar uh, revealing it to them, that's part of it. What from what we've read so far has shown us? Go ahead. So, so I think they were just uh, unable to comprehend that he's going to die and rise again, and that, that made them think that right. he must be talking... Definitely. It didn't make sense to them. And tied to that, from what we've read, what did Jesus say in the first account? Get behind me, Satan. You have in mind what? The things of man versus the things of God. They're looking at things with their own eyes. And it just doesn't make any sense to them. Peter says, if I think I hear what you're saying, I'm not going to let that happen. And of course, he had to be rebuked. Later on, he says it again, and they're greatly distressed, and they don't know really what he's talking about, but they're afraid to ask him. Then he goes into great detail and tells them they're going to mock me, spit on me, hand me over to the Gentiles, I'm going to be crucified. And they immediately go into who's going to sit on your right and who's going to sit on your left. They just, they're not getting it. But there's another reason, though. And here's the answer. By the way, I didn't expect you to get the answer right. You know why? The answer's in Luke. Remember how I've been telling you over and over, whenever you study the Gospels, look at the parallel passages 
Because you get a fuller picture of what's going on. I've heard too many preachers preach a sermon from Matthew and they'll actually think they're getting the context right, but they'll be wrong because they didn't look at Mark's account and Luke's account or John's account. And what they pulled out of Matthew looked good in Matthew, but when you take a look at Mark and Luke and John, all of a sudden you realize he was wrong. I want to encourage you again, get yourself a parallel Bible or something like that, or find a study Bible that at every passage that you're looking at, it'll tell you other passages that have it, and look at the whole story. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go look at Luke's account now of these three. Luke records all three of these as well. But there's going to be our answer in Luke. Go to Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through and 22. Luke chapter 9, verses 21 and 22. It says, And he strictly charged, them, charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Go over to Luke chapter 9, verses 43 through 45. Luke 9, 43 through 45. It says, let me put my glasses on so I make sure I start in 43. It, um, and they all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Jump all the way to Luke 18. The third one's recorded in Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. In Luke 18, verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So according to Luke now, why do they not get it? It was hidden from them, but don't jump to conclusions. Because I can say to you, we would agree, the scripture clearly says that it was hidden from them. And so my next question would be, then were they able to get it? If it was hidden from them, were they going to be able to get it? The answer is actually yes. You see, when we read it says it was hidden from them or concealed from them, we read it as God kept them from understanding it and they didn't really have an opportunity. But that's not what the scripture teaches. It's definitely to the glory of kings. And that's one of the passages we're going to take a look at tonight. But go back with me to Matthew chapter 11. But he also told them to let this sink into your ears. Yeah, he said, let it sink in. He, he spoke to them plainly. But I want you to notice something. Back in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said something that will be very, very helpful for us. Besides the fact that they're still focused on this life and is not as much the life to come, and besides the fact that they were looking at things with man's eyes and not God's insight, there's another reason. God's truth is revealed to the humble and those who ask God for wisdom and humble themselves like children. Look at Matthew 11, verses 25 through 27. It says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Why was it concealed from them? Was it because they weren't to know? They weren't humble. They were still trying to make it make sense in their head, in their minds, and because they were trying to use human reasoning and intellectual wisdom to try to figure it out, that's what kept them from understanding it. It's not going to be revealed to you if you try to figure it out. Let me just talk to you guys straight. I can promise you that probably everyone in this room, Jim Johnson included, when you're wrestling with a certain issue and you're praying about a decision, one of the first things you start to look at is the pros and the cons. You ever been there? We've all done it, haven't we? We all have a tendency to try to figure things out with human reasoning and intellectual wisdom. But Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you've hidden it from the wise and the understanding. But you've revealed it to little children because this is your gracious will. And we talked about this way back when we were in Matthew 11. The reason this is God's gracious will is that it's revealed to the humble, those who will be like children, is because, let's be honest, in this room we all have different levels of intellect. We could all talk about our grade point averages or all that kind of stuff, or uh, what's that test you take to find out whether you're a genius or whatever? What's that? The IQ test or all that? If spiritual truth was only figured out intellectually, that would leave a lot of us kind of in the lurch, wouldn't it? But spiritual truth is available to everyone, even children. But we have to humble ourselves. They're looking at it with man's eyes, trying to figure it out, trying to make it make sense. And because of that, it was concealed from them. Because spiritual truth is only revealed to the humble. Go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, look at verses 5 through 8. Look closely at what it says, though. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let this person ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The scripture says God's wisdom is available to everyone. He's generous with it. He shares it with everyone. But there's a caveat. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. You have to trust and believe without doubting that he's going to answer. By the way, as you're about to see, tied with that is when we ask God for wisdom and we seek God for wisdom... He may not always do it on our timetable. And rarely does he do it on our timetable. The disciples, as we saw here in chapter 20, they're jockeying for position and asking who's going to sit on his right hand and who's going to sit on his left and who's going to be greatest in the kingdom shows that they weren't really ready to receive spiritual truth. And spiritual truth is revealed only by God's spirit. This is what you were talking about. It's only revealed by God's spirit. But listen closely. And only when he decides the time is right. He will reveal it. He will share if it's to be revealed at that time. And he chooses when. And that's why we need to humble ourselves when God is silent and we're praying over an issue and we don't know what to do. We're to believe that he will speak. And you've heard me share before. We have a tendency to think, well, I really did pray. I really did believe he would tell me, but he just didn't. Well, it's because he didn't do it in the time period that we had in mind. 
So I'm going to show you just a little, some evidences here from Scripture that the Bible clearly shows that God's the one who opens up eyes. He's the one that reveals spiritual truth, but he determines when. And so go to John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, look at verses 6 and 7. Jesus is uh, washing the feet of the disciples. He's dressed himself like a servant. And he's washing their feet. In John chapter 13, verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you'll understand. In other words, I'm doing something right now in your life that doesn't make any sense to you, Peter, but it, just let me do it. You don't know what I'm doing right now. Later, you will. Have any of y'all ever in those situations? You've been through a situation at the time, you're thinking, I don't even know what in the world God's doing. What's happening? Why has this happened? And it might be a year later that all of a sudden he gives spiritual truth and you go, oh, I get it. Now I know why I went through that. And I'm glad I did, but at the time it made no sense. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 30. I'm going to give you a passage of scripture the Tuesday night group didn't get just so you feel special. Go to Jeremiah chapter 30. I'm going to start reading to you in verse uh, 18. Here in this prophecy about Jesus and going to be restoring the fortunes of Israel and the last days and all this stuff. Stuff that we're curious about. Anybody else like me really curious about the last days and the rapture and the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth? Look at Jeremiah chapter 30, starting in verse 18. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of, in the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I'll multiply them and they shall not be few. I'll make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves and their ruler shall come out from their midst. I'll make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. What does the rest of that verse say? In the latter days, you'll understand this. When will they understand it? In the latter days. The Jews, aren't. they've experienced the hardening in part until... The full number of the Gentiles has come in. The Jews won't come to a full understanding of this until God chooses to reveal it to them. Oh, by the way, what's he waiting for from them? Childlike humility and faith. Oh, by the way, the same is true of us. There are a lot of times that God's waiting for us to just say, Lord, you will show me. I believe it. And I'm going to wait until you do. And I'm going to ask and I'm going to believe. But at the same time, you don't have to be on my schedule. It's hard for us sometimes because we all want to be in charge. We want to determine how things go and when things are done. Go to Luke 24. This is on that first day that he rose from the dead, that Sunday afternoon, early evening. Luke 24, starting in verse 25. Jesus is with the two men on the road to Emmaus. In verse 25, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. By the way, I've said for years, and I'll say it again, I would have loved to sat in on that Bible study. Wouldn't that have been amazing to have Jesus during a 7, 11-mile walk to all the Old Testament prophecies pointing to himself? That would have been awesome. But now, put a bookmark here in Luke 24 and go with me to John chapter 14. Because I want to I show you something that's tied to our being able to hear the word of God and the wisdom from God. In John chapter 14, look at verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus said, while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you what? All things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Don't miss this. When Jesus was trying to open the eyes of these two guys who were followers of Jesus, they were in that group. They, they had seen the women return and say that the tomb was empty. They had seen Peter and John run and find a place empty and come back and report. They walked away discouraged. These guys had a lot of insight, but at the same time, that just didn't make any sense to them. They're looking at it with human eyes. They're going back discouraged. And what does Jesus do during that whole walk? He reminds them of the scriptures. Let me say this to you. You praying about something? You got some issues right now that you sure need wisdom from God and, and guidance? He's going to take you to his word. If you don't know his word, you're not going to be able to get wisdom from God. Because the main thing that God does is take you back to what he's already said, what he's already promised. And through his word, all of a sudden you'll get insight. You'll get understanding. And folks, let me just tell you, that's just something that you'll over time learn to develop and understand. But all of a sudden, you're praying about something and you may be spending time just reading in the passage or doing your devotion time or whatever. Or the Spirit of God will just bring a passage to your mind. And all of a sudden, from the scripture, all of a sudden you go, I know what he's wanting me to do. But he's going to use the word. And if you don't put it in, he can't bring it to your remembrance. So spend time in the word. Go back to Luke 24. So... Verse 20, a, uh, 28, so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and one, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Now they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and excuse me, said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me. See, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Again, reminding them of what he's already said, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
You ever heard the phrase, for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see? Humble yourself and say, Lord, give me eyes to see. Give me ears to hear. It's not because I'm smart and I can figure it out. It's because you give wisdom and you give truth. Spiritual truth is only spiritually revealed. And I humble myself before you and say, I need your wisdom. He's going to say, read my word. I don't know how many of you caught this. You remember how he says, um, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Remember when we were reading the accounts of the three reminders? Jesus, one, and one of them said, everything written about me in the law and the prophets are going to be fulfilled. Things that were written have to happen next. Folks, I just want to encourage you. The answer will come when he knows that it's best. Do you believe? Do you trust? Or does he have to do things on your schedule? Let me give you a couple of scriptures I want you to write down and look at them later on. Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's easy enough to remember. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says this. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed to us and to our children. In other words, there are going to be some things that God, for his reasons, for his purposes, doesn't tell us. And you have to be okay with that, like a child. I heard a story you know, a while back about a guy who was working on his car in his driveway, and his four-year-old son came up and said, what are you doing? And he says, oh, I'm, I'm working on the motor. He said, well, what's the motor do? And he said, my brain started to run into, uh, well, I could talk to him about combustion and electricity and explosion, spark and fuel and all this stuff, but it would make my kid's head blew up. So all I said was, it makes the car move. And the kid went away and go, okay. Would you not agree that God knows a whole lot more about what's going on? Yeah, he sure hopes so. You're right. And he does. You want a God that knows more than you. And here's the deal. Sometimes we got to be okay with, Lord, I don't understand why this is happening. I'm doing something. God says, I'm putting things in motion. Okay, I trust you. Here's another one to write down. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2. This is the one you started to quote. You quoted the second half of it, Allison. Here it is. Proverbs 25, verse 2. It says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's to God's glory that he hides things. It's the glory of kings to search out a matter. He doesn't want us to just sit back and do nothing. He wants us to ask. He tells us to seek. He tells us to knock. But when we do, we do it humbly like children who believe our father is good and he'll tell us when it's time. And if the answer is wait, then we wait. If it answers no, the answer is no. And that's best. And we trust him. But when we start catching ourselves getting frustrated because he hadn't told me yet and I don't understand and it doesn't make any sense. We show that we want to be in charge. I'm going to encourage you tonight by showing you two passages of scripture that actually show you that God actually hides stuff from his prophets. All right. So if he hides stuff from his prophets, he might hide stuff from you and me. Go to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4. There's a, a story here. Uh, and I'm going to set the stage. Uh, the prophet Elisha had gone to visit this Shunammite woman. And when he was there, she made him a room. because Whenever he came by, he would stay. And it was his room that she had made for him. And he said, what do you want God to do for you? She said, I ain't answering that question. Well, God speaking to him, told him what it was. And he said, you want a child? And she said, don't get my hopes up. Don't, don't tease me. 
God promised through the prophet that she would have a child, and she did. Miraculously, even though she hadn't been able to, she has this child. Well, the child grows now. And in 2 Kings chapter 4, look at verse 18. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father, being a typical dad, said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and she said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It's not Sunday or Wednesday. You know, (laughs) he goes, it's not the new moon or Sabbath. She said, all's well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to the servant, urge the animal on and don't slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God, this is Elisha, saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All's well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said to her, said, Leave her alone. He didn't say it to her. He said it to Gehazi. Leave her alone, for she's in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Here's the prophet who could see things and understand things, had wisdom from God. And in this instance, for God's reasons, he didn't tell Elisha what was going on or why. Elisha was clueless. Of course, if you know the rest of the story, she goes, didn't I tell you not to get my hopes up? Go to Daniel chapter 12. This is the end of the book of Daniel. Daniel's been given unbelievable amounts of visions and wisdom all through this book. If you know, there's even a time where the king has a dream and he tries to get all these people to interpret it. But he says, I'm not going to even tell you what the dream is so that you don't make. I'll know you're giving me the real interpretation. You got to tell me what the dream was first. Everybody's like, who can do that? And God being God and knowing everything and knowing every thought and orchestrating all parts of the the world. he, He tells Daniel what the dream is and the interpretation. And Daniel, throughout the book, has been given wisdom and visions of the last days and the kingdoms of the earth and all this stuff. And in chapter 12, look at verses 4 through 13. He says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until when? Until the time of the end. Remember, Remember Jeremiah chapter 30? In the last days, in the latter days, you'll understand this. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and left hand toward the heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard... Daniel says, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. 
Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Here's Daniel. Saying, you just showed me all this stuff. When's this going to be? How's this going to happen? And God says, not for you to know. Oh, you're going to be a part of it. And you'll come back to life at that time. And you'll rule and reign. But until then, I choose not to reveal the answer. Only a child who truly trusts will be the one who says, okay, I trust him. He's good and he knows what's best. And so, folks, by the way, um, that's why on a daily basis you have to lay your flesh on the altar. That's a daily thing, by the way. Proverbs, I mean, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship or your reasonable service. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed actually by the daily renewing of your mind. It actually is in the Greek. And you'll be able to know what his will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. On a daily basis, we've got to take this flesh that wants to be in control, wants to be in charge. Those thoughts of, but God, help, hurry up, when? Those are going to have to be laid down on a regular basis. Don't beat yourself up. Just lay, the, lay it down. Lay it down. Are you okay with the fact that you'll know what you're to know if you humble yourself and ask God for wisdom? Are you also okay if for God's reasons... You aren't supposed to know. Or at least not now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus himself said only the father knows that one. Exactly. That's what I'm getting at. True humility is ask, believe that he'll speak. But if his answer is wait, it's OK. If his answer is no, it's OK. But keep asking until you know what he said. Now go back and we're going to look at verses 20 through 28 in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, further proof that Jesus' disciples truly haven't grasped that he just said that he was going to be crucified on a cross and then rise from the dead is the fact that soon after hearing this, we see James and John, with mama's help, we see in Matthew's account, asking if they can sit on Jesus' right and left in his kingdom. And Jesus says, we saw that in Mark's account as well, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Does anybody know why Jesus says you don't know what you're asking? When they said, hey, can we sit on your right and sit on your left? He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Oh, and by the way, in Mark's account, he even adds this. Are you going to be able to go through the baptism that I'm about to be baptized with? By the way, quickly, that cannot mean his water baptism because he'd already had that. He's referring to a baptism that's still to come. So what's he saying when he says to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm, able to, I'm about to drink or the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? What's he saying? What he has to go through in order to glorify. Oh, I love how you worded it. What he has to go through in order to be glorified. Let me show, say something to you and then prove it to you from Scripture. They don't fully understand that great reward is tied to great sacrifice and suffering and loss in this life. I'm going to say it to you one more time. Great reward and great, and is tied to great sacrifice and great suffering and loss in this life. Go to Romans chapter 8, 
Look at verses 16 and 17. It's a passage of scripture I love. Uh, sorry, let me take it back. I hear people quote all the time. Unfortunately, they don't quote the whole verse. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. Look at what it says. It says, the Holy Spirit, you see in your Bibles, it's a capital S, chapter, six, chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit Himself, Holy Spirit Himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Amen, right? And that's what people, that's how they quote it? We're fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Look at verses 11 and 12a, the first half of verse 12. 2 Timothy 2 verse 11 and 12. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Nobody talks about how we're going to reign with Christ. Oh, that's reserved for those it's been appointed. And according to Scripture, who's it been appointed for? The people that are willing to endure. Those who go through suffering in this life. Oh, by the way, these guys do drink the cup that he's about to drink. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit here. Go to Matthew 26, though, and it'll help us understand this cup analogy a little bit more. Matthew chapter 26, look at verses 36 through 46. In Matthew 26, starting in verse 36, we see Jesus praying in the garden. So then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Folks, is anybody else encouraged with the fact that Jesus had to lay his flesh down too? Do you see it? We always picture that he had this perfect submission and perfect obedience. And it was in the sense that he never disobeyed and he never went against the commands of his father, but he wrestled with it. You and I are going to wrestle with it. It's going to happen. You know, when the Bible says, <coughs> excuse me, in Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, don't be anxious about anything, but with prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. We for years thought that we were never to be anxious. Well, if you're never anxious, you're never going to have a request to make to God. It's just saying when you have these times of anxiousness, don't be anxious. Don't stay there. Make your request to God. There are going to be things that happen to us. In this life, you will have trouble. There's going to be times your flesh is going to rise up and want an answer right away. And God's going to say, wait, that's going to happen. Don't beat yourself up and say, well, I'm supposed to just trust God. No, tell him how you feel. 
but then you lay down your will. And as a child, say, I trust you. You imagine a kid, you ever tell a kid when they were tired they needed a nap? Did you ever tell a kid that? Remember when they were little and they told them they needed a nap? Did they typically fight you a little bit? No, I don't, I'm fine. But in time, as a child, they would say, okay, you're right. And they'd go lay down. And sometimes you'd have to duct tape them to the bed, but they (laughs) would usually agree with you that you were right. They, by the way, when Jesus says, are you able to drink this cup that I'm about to drink? I love their answer. Yeah. They had no idea what they were talking about. But Jesus, knowing everything, said, you will. You will drink the cup that I'm about to drink. They didn't even understand that. They still didn't even understand that. But go to Acts. He's praying in the garden. They're asleep. Yep. Go to Acts chapter 12. Go to Acts chapter 12. Look at verses 1 and 2. I want you to meditate on this passage of Scripture. Just two verses. I want you to meditate on it with me a little bit tonight. Acts chapter 12. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So... The cup is death and suffering and submission to God's plan. Did James drink the cup that Jesus did? He sure did. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you'll see in verse 3 that when he saw that it pleased the Jews, when Herod saw that killing James, the brother of John, pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. By the way, if you don't know the rest of the story, let me just tell you what happens next. Peter's arrested, and he's going to be put to death the next day. And that night, God, for his reasons and his purpose, he released Peter miraculously. The chains fall off. The doors fly open. Nobody even notices. He walks out. He thinks it's a dream half the way till he's halfway out of the city, and he realizes this really happened. Put yourself in John's shoes, the brother of James. Every time that group of apostles got back together, And Peter's sitting there after James had been killed was a reminder that Jesus, God chose to release Peter miraculously in the same prison that his brother was put to death in. How would that make you feel? I was pastor of First Baptist in the Atlantic. When I was pastor there, there was a man in the church whose wife had a massive stroke. And from that day that she had the massive stroke, she spent the rest of her life in a nursing home. And she only could say two words the rest of her life. Wonderful, nice. The only two words that ever come out of her mouth. You'd go to visit her and say, how are you? Wonderful, nice. It's raining outside, isn't it? Wonderful, nice. How are you feeling? Wonderful, nice. That's all she could ever speak ever again. She spent the rest of her life in the nursing home because of that stroke. There was also in that exact same church another lady who around the exact same time had a massive stroke. And God healed her and she sang every Sunday in the choir. And every Sunday that man would watch that lady in the choir singing when his wife was in a nursing home and they had the exact same stroke. We want it all to make sense. We want it all have things go the way we want. And I'm telling you, it's in all of us. And God says to us, you'll never understand spiritual truth if you try to make it make sense. If you try to figure it out with human reasoning, 
You'll never have it make sense. John, by the way, if you were to write it down, look at it later on, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, we see that he's writing this book of Revelation. Why was he on the Isle of Patmos? Because of suffering, because of Jesus Christ. And they all were put to death because of their faith. But I want to also point out to you real quickly, Jesus already knew how their lives were going to play out. I want to encourage you with this, with something. We're going to take a look at Peter. Go to, go to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verses 31 through 34. In Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. By the way, that you is plural, all y'all. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That you is singular in the Greek. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter says to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. By the way, other accounts, Matthew and Mark, and sorry, Mark and, and the others, uh, uh, sorry, you know, Matthew and Mark, th their accounts show that Peter pretty much says, I don't know about the rest of these bums, but I, I love you the most. I'm willing to go to prison and death. And Jesus says, actually, I know you better than know yourself, Peter. Uh, the rooster is not going to crow today until you deny three times that you even know me. Peter says, I'm willing to go to death for you. And Jesus says to him, as you're about to see in John 21, you will, but not right away. You're actually going to act like you don't even know me first. Go to John 21. Look at verses 15 through 19. In John 21, we see the third time that we have recorded that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he rose from the dead. In verse 15, they remember he's done the miraculous catch of fish. They're cooking some of the fish they caught. They, he already had some on the fire. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, I, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. I love how God opened my eyes to this one day that Jesus, just a few days after Peter had denied Jesus, Jesus comes back up and meets Peter and he says, hey, remember that guy said he would die for me? You will. You will. Folks, let me encourage you with something. We've already agreed we've had days where we haven't done so well. We've had days where we kind of tried to grab the reins and we've kind of tried to get, we've gotten mad at God because he didn't do it like we wanted. He sees the finished product. He knows how we're going to finish. And my encouragement to you is don't beat yourself up when you have a bad day, but humble yourself and say, Lord, my bad. And be encouraged with the fact that he knows how you're going to finish and he's going to finish what he started. All he's looking for from you is what? Humility. 
Humility and surrender. Does that mean that your flesh is never going to rear its ugly head? No, it doesn't mean that. But when it does, recognize it. Recognize that feeling of frustration and anxiety and worry and stress and doubt and fear. Those are all road bumps, if you will, to let you know you've gotten off the path a little bit. And be reminded of the fact that he, he's not upset with you. He knows how you're going to finish. But just as much as Jesus knew how their lives would play out, and that they would be sitting on 12 thrones judging Israel. Remember last week we looked in Matthew 19. He said, you guys that have been with me are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the tribes of Israel. He knew that that was going to happen in the new world. There were some things that won't be revealed until it's time. Remember the his answer to them is, is, yes, you're going to drink the cup that I'm about to drink. But who's going to sit on my right and left? That's going to be revealed by my father when it's time. And he's already chosen who that is. Now, how come he chose who it is? Because he already sees the big picture. He already sees the whole thing and he knows who it is that he's chosen. Uh, by the way, if you were to go look at Matthew 25, we're not going to break it down. But in Matthew 25, 31 through 34, in the parable of the sheep and the goats, and I can't wait till we get to that because that has been taught incorrectly for so many years. It has nothing to do with the church. But we've taught, been taught that, you know, we're going to visit someone in prison and give them a glass of water and all that. I'm going to show you what that passage is really dealing with. But in that passage in Matthew 25, 31 through 34, when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on the earth and he judges the nations according to how they've treated Israel. We'll get to that later on. He says to those who are on his right, the sheep, come enter the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. The Father's already determined who's going to sit on that throne, who's going to sit on the right and the left of Jesus. Go real quick to Revelation chapter 20. We get a picture of this when we see the, uh, the glimpse of the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation 20, starting in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into the pit. And he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that time, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And then he talks about other people that he saw come to life as well. Who's sitting on those thrones in the millennial kingdom? The ones that God chose and who had been given the authority to do so, according to what we've seen tonight, what is tied to sitting on those thrones? Humility, suffering, loss in this life. People who are willing to say, it's not about me, it's about him. It's not about my plan for my life, it's, my, it's about his plan for my life. And those people, those who are willing to let God put them through suffering in this life, are the ones who are going to be rewarded with that. And God's already knows who they're going to be. I'm going to encourage you, try to be one of them. Try to be one. All you need to do on a daily basis is lay your flesh on the altar. Continually say, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you. Now, when the rest of the disciples heard that James and John had asked to sit on each side of Jesus in the kingdom, they were indignant, the scripture says. By the way, why do you think the rest of the disciples were mad when they heard that they had asked to sit on his right and left? Because they didn't think of it first. They're like, dip. You know, I can't believe he beat me in line. 
So Jesus reminds them of the fact that he, the one they would all agree is the greatest among them, has come as a servant, and so should they. Go back to Matthew chapter 20. Look at verses 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and he said, You know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, excuse me, his life as a ransom for many. In John chapter 13, you remember Jesus at this time he finished washing the disciples' feet. He said, uh, Bob said he dressed himself again and he said, uh, you call me teacher and Lord and rightly so because that's what I am. If I, your Lord, have done this, you also should wash each other's feet. So folks, Jesus is saying to them, look. You guys all want to be great. Who's going to sit on your right? Who's going to sit on your left? Who's going to be the most important? Who's going to be the most recognized? Would you not agree that in this group of people that I'm probably the most important? You call me Lord. You call me teacher. Rightly so, because that's who I am. I'm God himself in the flesh. I've been revealing this to you. But if I have come as a servant, not seeking to be served, why is your attitude that you have to be important? I'm going to say that to us all, Jim included. Why do you want to be recognized? Why do you get upset if you don't feel appreciated? My family will tell you, and Becky will testify that it's true. I'm not an angry person. I don't get upset very often. I'll be honest with you, I don't have a temper. Very, very little makes me upset and angry. But one of the few things that does actually push my buttons it's when I don't feel like I've been appreciated for all that I've done. That's just my pride wanting the recognition. Folks, all of us have this problem. All of us have it in one shape or form. We want to be recognized. The early church had that problem in the church in Corinth where they're all saying, well, I follow Paul, so I follow Paul. I follow Christ, so I follow, follow Cephas. They're all jockeying for position. How often have we in the church heard the phrase, you got to let them know who's boss? When we take the servant road, though, folks, we not only imitate Christ, we also show that we trust that if we are to be exalted, God will do it. You're not just imitating Christ when you humbly take the servant road. And you don't care if anybody notices how hard you worked or how many hours you put in on this project. When you're doing it for Christ, you don't care. And you're also trusting that if you are to be recognized, God will be the one who does it. We've already seen, go back to Matthew chapter 19 again, look at verse 30. We've seen him say the many are the first will be last and the last first. And then Matthew chapter 20 verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. Let me show you two other places where similar phrases are used. Go to Matthew chapter 23. You're in chapter 20. Jump over to 23. Look at verses 11 and 12. In Matthew 23, verse 11, Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's Matthew 23, 11 and 12. Jump over to Luke 14. In Luke chapter 14, look at verses 7 through 11. 
It says, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited and when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you go or when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, give your place to this person and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes and may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. I don't know if you caught it yet or not, but humility is in your future. You're going to be humbled either way. I think it's better if you humble yourself than have to have God humble you. Better to bend the knee than have him have to break it. Exactly. I like that. Better to bend the knee than have him have to break it. Here's how we're going to close tonight in the time we have left. Go to Matthew chapter 20. Look again at verse 28. Jesus says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me ask you a question tonight. Aren't you glad that Jesus took the servant role? Let's go back now and read verses 17, 18, and 19 and tell me they don't sound a little different now at the end of our study. Listen to what Jesus is saying. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. We already saw from the other accounts, he also said spit on. And he'll be raised on the third day. Do you realize Jesus knew full well what he was headed to? But he humbled himself and he took the role of a servant. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of Christ, our God. We're going to close tonight with Philippians chapter 2. It's a passage we all know well, but I want you to hopefully let the Spirit of God, let the truth sink into your hearts. In Philippians chapter 2, listen to verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to the point of death. Not just death, not just any death, but even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Folks, when your flesh doesn't want to take the back seat or the humble road and your flesh wants to be in charge, be reminded of the fact that we praise God for the fact that Jesus himself took that servant role. And if Jesus is willing to take the servant role, how dare we ever say, I won't. I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.